Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This is Controlling Commodity Costs, and we are your hosts, Craig Turner and Tom Dazzle. We are your authority to gain control of your commodity exposure, stay ahead of the competition, and maximize your profit margins. This podcast is brought to you by StoneX Group, a Fortune 100 company with a 100-year history in the commodity markets. You can find us on the NASDAQ. All right. Welcome to the October market update. I'm Tom Dosdall, joined as always by Craig Turner. And we have a special guest joining us today, and that is Arlen Suderman, chief economist at StoneX. Since there's a lot of things going on in the macro landscape, we wanted to bring Arlen in and give him an opportunity to be heard and and let our audience uh, hear from him directly. So Arlen, we want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for joining in this month. You bet. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, you, you do a great service out there to our customers, and uh, it's fun to be able to work with you. And, and one of the advantages of the company that we have. Well, thank you for that. If you don't mind how we always do it when we have a new guest on, just go ahead and tell us uh, a little bit about your background, your bio. Um, and uh, I know many people might know who you are already, but for those who don't, tell them a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I grew up on a uh, diversified uh, farm in Kansas, crop and livestock farm, and attended Kansas State University. Um, Following that, I joined the Kansas State Extension Service and worked uh, mostly as an agronomist initially, working with farmers uh, on field trials and solving problems for them on the production side. But they kept asking me about markets because that was what was so frustrating to them is to kind of understand why the markets do what they do. And so I started studying the markets and started seeing that uh, much of the fundamental information I saw out there, commentary coming out of Chicago at the time, and this is during the uh, late 80s and 90s, uh, really didn't seem to uh, explain the pr- movement in prices on many different days. And so I started looking at the interaction between different markets and the money flow aspect of it and seeing some of those correlations were stronger than what were being given credit a lot of times. And uh, then translating that into marketing classes and marketing clubs for farmers um, the, to help them understand the markets so they could utilize the tools that are available to them. I actually left the extension service, did private consulting, working with Farmers built quite a client base up and and uh, did that uh, for a little while until I was given an opportunity to be a market analyst for farm progress companies, a family of publications and websites, uh, most notably known there for the work we did with farmfutures.com, Farm Futures Magazine, where we had about 65% national market share. Uh, and uh, from there, I, I uh, got an offer to, uh, to head up the research department uh, for a, uh, a regional consulting uh, firm that had uh, customers in 13 states across the Midwest and did that for several years until Stonex gave me the call. I initially said, no, thank you. I'm very happy where I'm at. We're all taken care of, but they kept working on me and I'm glad they did. I made the switch. And uh, now my former boss is a customer of Stonex and we talk every day and have good relationship. And I've just really loved the time here at Stonex, heading up a team to provide market intelligence analysis for our brokers and our customers. I think that's a key point to to point out that you're not a, a broker directly. You're really on 
the side of providing information and market research to our clients on a regular basis. And so in, in that sense, you, you get solicited by a lot of media folks to, to, for your opinion and your analysis on the markets. I think you were just saying you're upwards of uh, what, 50, 60 media interviews a month? 60 to 70 media interviews a month. And we limit it to primarily to uh, regional and national media outlets. Uh, that would include uh, Reuters, Bloomberg, and the national outlets for the wire services. Um, there's a couple others as well, but also uh, RFD TV that has 55 million viewers and uh, some of the major regional radio networks that uh, you hear across the Midwest. That's great. And so started off on a on the farm level, but uh, your analysis now I think reaches uh, to the very macro level, uh, not just not just on the local, national, but on the on the global level. So there's a lot going on in the world right now. Let's let's get into that a little bit and talk about what it might mean for markets. I guess the most logical place to start off would be with what's going on in the Middle East right now, especially with uh, with Israel, Hamas, Iran. Um, how do you see this playing out? Like what markets might be most affected in the near term by this? Um, not asking you to, well, uh, predict the future in terms of uh, how this conflict goes, but what, what markets should our listeners be aware of and pay, what, what should they be paying attention to from a volatility standpoint? Yeah, obviously, there's a human tragedy side of it that we want to keep in mind. And, and we've seen this before, but it's the most intense now that it's been in 50 years or maybe a little bit more. And so we have to pay particular attention. There are times in history where we've seen this come to this level and and then quiet down and, and just quietly simmer again for a period of decades. Uh, will that happen this time or will it turn into a broader conflict? We do not yet know the answer to that. So what is the tie to the markets? Most specifically and directly, it applies to the natural gas and crude oil market, they, or in other words, the energy side of things, because we already have seen a major pipeline that goes along the Gaza Strip that uh, comes from Egypt, which is a major exporter of natural gas, shut down. So that's tightening supplies of natural gas. The risk is that we could see this whole conflict turn into a broader regional conflict that would affect output of crude oil, and that's already been threatened to some extent. Um, so that's a concern as well. Now, when you have energy supplies that are threatened, then and that raises prices for energy, then you see an indirect effect on the biofuels. Demand for biofuels tends to go up, and that is a positive for corn and soybeans in particular. But you also now have greater ties with Russia and China in the region than what we've ever had before, particularly after the last six months, we've seen some significant strengthening of ties between China and uh, the Arab nations as a whole, with several of them already applying for membership into the BRICS coalition. So this battle between the East and the West is also pulled into this now um, as well in that coalition of working as one against the West. So there's many different tentacles that could affect trading routes, who you do business with, reduces trading efficiencies, raising costs for commodities, and also inflationary in nature. Yep. Uncertainty, I guess, is my main takeaway from all of that. A lot of our listeners in the food and beverage industry have exposure to energy markets, like you said, and also to the uh, related products uh, on the food side, whether it's 
whether it's corn related or uh, soybean oil, I know is one that comes to mind as well uh, as an ingredient. So many things that hopefully our listeners are checking in with their advisors or, or, or with their Stonex reps on um, to discuss if we need to help uh, any way to control some of that cost of, uh, of, of, of those potential ingredients moving higher. Um, Craig, anything you want to jump in with? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you'd mentioned biofuels there, Arlen, and, you know, some of, you know, after the last uh, NOPA report, you know, we saw the soybean oil stocks coming down to the lowest levels since 2014. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting. You know, it's also, we have our grain, you know, grain prices are, are linked now with energy policy and energy prices. I mean, what do you, what are you seeing with soybean oil and, you know, soybeans and just, you know, is, is demand going to continue to increase on that front? Yeah, and the real question on the soybean side is, um, does demand for crush increase at the same rate that we lose export demand? Because we're definitely losing export demand as China shifts toward originating more of its supplies from Brazil. And China's not the only one doing that. They're just the big one. Um, so what is that relationship? I believe that USDA is probably about 60 million bushels too low on the crush side of their balance sheet. Um, but they're also too high on their exports. But how too high is still a question mark. Right now, I have exports about 25 million bushels below where USDA is at. So that's a net gain if crush goes up 60 million and exports go down 25 million. Um, but exports are, are a big unknown right now. We know that uh, China has bought uh, better than 40% of its shipping needs for October, November from South America, mostly Brazil, but some Argentine supplies. Normally, we would fill most of that demand this time of year. So that's one reason that mar export sales for soybeans uh, marketing year to date are trailed the seasonal pace needed to hit USDA's target by about 150 million bushels. But China has still needs to buy about two and a half to three million metric tons for November. November shipment yet, and they have to buy most of what they need for December and January, which would be another 9 to 11 million metric tons. So the question is, where will they buy it? And they're, they're telling us that they're watching the pricing structure in Brazil, which they think right now is kind of in an inverse and in, in making them more expensive, their beans more expensive than U.S. beans. If the growing season gets off to a good start, they think that inverse will go away. Uh, and uh, Brazil beans will be more affordable again. If not, then they'll buy more from U.S. So that'll have a big impact impact on where our export number ends up. Will it be another 150 or 200 million bushels lower, or will USD USDA be basically right? So the increased crush demand will drop our ending stocks below 200 million. That's a key question we don't have an answer to, and that'll have big implications for price. I was just thinking yesterday when I saw that NOPA crush report, I saw a year over year inventory decline in soybean oil went from 1.459 billion pounds to 1.108. So a loss of 351 million year over year at that pace. And I just took that number 1.1 divided by 351. And it seems to me like in three years at this pace, it doesn't leave much soybean oil around unless we either dramatically increase supply or change up global trade flows significantly. Yeah, so, it, 
And we will be increasing the supply because the new plants, new crushed plants coming on. But that also means that as those new crushed plants coming on, there's there's incentive for seeing those crushed plants fully utilized. And USDA has sure. been assuming that uh, high tight supplies will ration demand for crush. And that that's not going to happen. I was on a panel a few weeks ago. Uh, with the chief economist from USDA, and I made that statement. And I said, you know, they just cut crush by 10 million bushels last report, and they're too low. And lo and behold, in this last report, USDA added that 10 million back in. And, and I think that helped send a message to the market. Now, when you look at the drop in soil supplies, I think it's a little bit misleading because the price had come down so far. I think we saw a mm. lot of a renewable diesel plants build their store build their reserves a little bit and take mm -hmm. advantage of that and uh so that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to sustain that level um but when the price breaks they're taking advantage of it and building up their stocks and uh when the prices rally they back off from the market that's all good, all good points sorry craig go ahead yeah, I was actually, you know, you know Arlen is very thorough on the on the soybean side. Um, I know you've been talking a lot about, you know, corn and how I mean, you were kind of an early proponent of, you know, warning people that corn is going to be over, you know, two billion on the carryout. It can even, you know, it, it could even increase more because demand has been weak. Do you do you still see do you still see that for the the corn market for the new crop marketing year? I do, and and I get my numbers from working on a world balance sheet first, and going by country to country, what the needs and and demands and ex exports and imports expected to do, before I solve where we're at with our U.S. exports. And the biggest thing we continue to see, obviously, is expansion of production of both corn and soybeans in Brazil. Um, Brazil is cutting back a little bit on their acreage on their summer corn this year because it's just simply not as uh, profitable. Uh, putting more focus on soybeans and other crops, but that's only about a quarter of their corn production. The, uh, three quarters of their production is basically their winter crop, which they plant mostly in February. So what will that do? Right now, we're still anticipating that we're going to see some increase in area for that crop. Um, but it's there's a lot of variability and possibilities with that. I think the bigger question is what is weather going to do? Uh, when will we harvest the soybean crop? If the rains don't come and we continue to d delay soybean planting, that delays the soybean harvest, which delays the corn planting. Typically in an El Nino, and this has not been a very typical El Nino, but typically we would have a late start to the rainy season and an early end to it. Well, if you plant a little bit later and you have an early end to the monsoons, then you end up with a short corn crop. So that is a risk, but that's still six to eight months out, and that's still an unknown. We had a late corn crop this last year, but the monsoons ended later than normal, and they ended up with a bumper crop. Um, so I wouldn't build a marketing plan based on expectations of a short corn crop next year, but that is a possibility that could help our exports recover in the last half of this marketing year. But if that doesn't happen, I think we're going to continue to struggle on the export side. I think the USDA is too high on the feed usage side as well with the number of cattle that we have with the, with the smaller herd right now. Uh, we're expecting maybe smaller hog numbers as well, but the pigs per litter has really jumped up and that's helped us uh, kind of bump those numbers up a little bit more. 
Thanks for that. Let me switch gears if I can. Can I? Can we switch over to wheat? Because I know a lot of our, our folks listening are in procurement. They're procuring uh, either milling wheat or, or something related to the price of wheat. Now, help us understand, we know that the world is relatively tight on wheat. Russia's had a big wheat crop that they continue to flood the world market with. But are these prices kind of on a value area in the wheat? Uh, we see China coming in with some new demand here lately, it seems, this the last uh, couple of weeks. What are your thoughts on that? That's kind of the sense, once again, that the wheat market's trying to find a value area. Um, the biggest problem right now in the United States, some of the supply side, has been hard red winter wheat. Uh, which really saw much better yields than what was expected from what wasn't abandoned. And of course, exports have really been hurting, so the supplies are up. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a bearish story that the market has been pricing in, combined with all the record wheat supplies that Russia has been dumping onto the world market. But as you said, milling quality wheat supplies in the world outside of that are relatively snug among the major exporters. So two keys that we're watching that could turn this wheat picture around and create a short covering rally uh, with as many shorts as we have in the wheat market, mostly in Chicago soft, but also in the building in the hard, uh, Kansas City hard red winter wheat market as well, um, is, is China which has come in for quite a bit of uh, soft red winter wheat and is now rumored to in the cash markets to be in for hard red winter wheat as well. Uh, we don't have confirmation of that yet, but you know, just the fact that it's rumored indicates that we're probably somewhat competitive right now. Um, and uh, the other thing we're watching closely is heavy rains in southern Brazil where they grow their wheat. Brazil grows a lot of wheat. It's mostly in the southern part of the country where while it's been dry in center west Brazil impacting soybean planting, it's been extremely wet in the southern areas as their crop matures and approaches harvest. So if they have a lot of quality problems with their wheat crop, they're going to really have to increase imports this year. They first go to Argentina, but Argentina looks like they're going to have another very short crop. So that means coming to United States for hard red winter. So if we get both China and Brazil buying a hard red winter that'll start tightening up mm -hmm. that balance sheet and help uh, justify a short covering rally and some strength in that market so there's a lot of risk for volatility still because we are you know we had been transitioning kind of from you know tight stocks to you know adequate and burn into some of these commodities but if you get a another you know weather issue somewhere arlen you know you can definitely get you know spikes back higher in some of these markets yeah, absolutely. And we're still somewhat a headline risk also from the Black Sea. Um, Ukraine is increasing its shipments right now. It's making things work and finding ways to ship both on water over land. Um, but the, so the market's not real concerned, but what it's monitoring is if anything were to happen, if Ukraine would find a way to curtail shipments from Russia, then that would be a game changer. That's who's dumping all the cheap wheat on the world market. If you start cutting those shipments, that's a real game changer for the whole world balance sheet. Very interesting. I've got, so, you know, Arlen, we, I mean, we've been in a tight stock situation for about two or three years now in, in at least one of the major grain and oil seed markets. You know, at, at some point down the road, you know, you know, we will have, you know, good crops and there will be, we will eventually get to burdensome to adequate levels within 
know, all the major grain and oil seed markets, you know, considering just where we've been with inflation and how price, you know, some of the price shifts have moved. When, when that happens, what do you think are going to be kind of like the new lows or the new ranges? Like, do we go back to, you know, pre-2020 prices or are we going to shift higher eventually? Well, what we've seen throughout the years is this rally and then pull back, but you don't pull back as low as what you were previously. It's a new plateau level. It kind of follows the inflation rate. And uh, so that's kind of what we would anticipate. So therefore, you know, you remember the days of $3 corn. I remember well the days of $1.50, $2 corn. So we don't anticipate being back in that area again because – uh, basically, input costs are much higher, and the market finds those levels, and, and an efficient market finds price levels that are basically minimize the margins. So it encourages just enough production to meet the demand, um, but yet uh, demand uh, supply above that is punished by holding prices just above the cost of production. So that's what an efficient market will basically do. And the input costs are much higher today than, than what they were 10, 15 years ago overall. I know there were spikes then and we had times of higher input costs. Um, but those input costs overall trending higher. And the, that's something else we have to watch in the Middle East with energy prices generally being a factor for fertilizer costs as well as we could very easily see that uh, spur another surge in, in fertilizer prices that would impact production um, globally. And uh, that's another factor that particularly end users need to be uh, aware of. Perfect. Thank you, Arlen. All right. Shifting gears back a little bit now just to the macro side of things. The other big thing going on right now is the effect that these higher interest rates are having on the market uh, and demand overall. And what could that mean for price? Talk to us a little bit about where where we are on rates and are we starting to see any cracks in the economy that would be uh, a concern for any of these commodity prices? Well, we are starting to see some cracks, um, but they're not sufficient yet to bring inflation down to the Federal Reserve's 2% target. Um, but uh, Treasury yields are telling us a lot. They're basically, the bond market is doing the job of the Federal Reserve right now. And so it's very possible that we won't see any more increases in interest rates which by the Federal Reserve, which just controls those shortest term rates, the overnight rate, um, because the bond market is continuing to push those yields higher. And that's to a great extent a product of the, the number of debt certificates that are being offered onto the market on a regular basis versus the number of buyers. Uh, the Fed is purchasing $1.14 trillion worth of fewer of debt certificates per year now as it shrinks its balance sheet and withdraws stimulus from the economy. Japan and China are also buying fewer uh, debt certificates to a tune of a couple hundred billion per year. So you put it together, it's $1.3 trillion plus. A less demand at a time when uh, Apollo Economics estimates that across the yield curve, we're going to be offering 23% more debt certificates onto the market in 2024 than we did in 2023. So the only way you get the demand to buy all those debt certificates is with higher yields. And so that's driving it higher, that is putting the brakes on the economy, or at least that's expected to, some sectors faster than others. And that is a longer term risk to demand for commodities. 
particularly you would think energy because that's most sensitive to the economy. Food base less so, but money flow perceives all commodities the same. So uh, we can show our Stonex commodity index correlates very highly to market expectations of inflation and versus recession, like a 0.88 correlate statistical correlation over the last 10 years. And so they tend to sell all commodities. And so in during times of recession fears, uh, the market manages supply and demand of grain and oil seeds at a lower level than it does during times when it's expecting inflation and rapid growth. I think that's and that's reason, you know, we think of oil, it was it was in a downturn until those attacks in Israel a couple of weeks ago, and, and that put some support under it uh, and it kind of stopped the downturn. But I think this is something that our audience wants to keep in mind going forward in terms of leaving themselves open to potentially uh, procure commodities at a lower price, while at the same time controlling the risk of prices rising due to some of these uncertain uh, things that you had mentioned earlier uh, related to whether it's whether it's global weather or geopolitics or something else. Um, these are the two things that are that are kind of competing in different realms that we want to make sure that uh, our clients are are positioned properly for. So with that said, I think that's a nice segue actually into how uh, you and your team provide ongoing market intelligence and research uh, for our clients so that they continue to con continue to be informed on a regular basis. Um, let's talk a little bit about market intelligence and, and what we put out there uh, daily. Arlen, you have your uh, morning commentary or bulletin that you put out and also a midday um, or afternoon update. Yeah, absolutely. And I keep my commentary to one page because I know everyone's busy and has a lot of things hitting them. And so I, I try to hit the main factors of impacting the markets. First of all, in the morning, it's kind of a broader macro picture than midday. It's focused a little bit more on uh, the agricultural commodities and, and what's impacting that in a, a short, brief summary. Um, so that's kind of what I per, uh, put out uh, on a written uh, side each day. And then you have a team behind you there. Tell us about um, how many folks there in the office uh, specific specifically working on market intelligence? Yeah, I've got a team of, of seven here in the United States, and then we have a team in, in uh, Brazil as well as in London uh, that we work with in, in parallel. And uh, we try to correlate and support each other and uh, col collaborate together. And in our job, you know, when I was hired to head up this team, eight years ago, it was, well, kind of meet the needs of the brokers to, to build charts that they need to show their customers what's happening in the fundamentals. So we started doing that and we, we developed a dream. What if we could take all this data that we get uh, from USDA, Department of Energy, uh, foreign data from various governments, et cetera, and put it all in a big data lake and develop tools to give our customers and our brokers the power to be able to access it and do and interact with it and do their their own analysis as they see fit as well and uh, working with some of the other development teams and data teams within the stonex we've been able to do that with our own market intelligence portal now so not only can you get commentary there from us and from various uh, people within the company that do commentary each day, but also you can access these interactive uh, uh, dashboards that allow you to access the database 
and do your own analysis and, and see what the data points are and uh, really see what's developing in the correlation between different markets, look at spreads, uh, uh, look at develop histograms or whatever you're looking at. And uh, um, I think uh, really puts the power in the hand of the customer, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. I Go ahead, Craig. Sorry. I, no problem. I think they're fantastic tools and we'll put a link in the show notes so people can check it out on you know, Arlen's uh, commentary. If you don't get it, you can take a trial to market intelligence. I use them all the time. I think they're fantastic tools to get a handle of what's going on in the grain and oilseed markets. I'd second that. I, I was going to say I, I really uh, find value in the ability and the promptness of the team that, that can help us get information too. If I can't figure out how to use the database, Someone's always there and gets me a quick reply. Uh, if it's some kind of a small grain or a niche product that a, that a company is trying to hedge, and we want to figure out what's that most correlated to that has a futures contract or a swap product uh, related to it, we can figure that out in a in a jiffy. And I think it adds a lot of value and sets you apart, sets Stonex apart, and and the market intelligence team apart from some of the competition. So um, yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. For any listeners who want to maybe sign up for a free trial to market intelligence, we would encourage you go in there and check it out. Um, sign up and you'll get Arlen's commentary uh, again on that uh, regular cadence. And hopefully it'll help everyone with their decision making process going forward in what is an uncertain, uh, continuously uncertain environment here. So with that, I think I just want to say thanks, Arlen, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. And uh, we'll look forward to talking with you again soon. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed it, Tom and Craig. Awesome. Well, have a good day, everyone. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening, everybody. The trading of derivatives, such as futures, options, and over-the-counter OTC products or swaps may not be suitable for all investors. Derivatives trading involves substantial risk of loss. You should fully understand those risks prior to trading. Past financial results are not necessarily indicative of future performance. All references to futures and options on futures trading are made solely on behalf of the FCM division of Stonex Financial Inc., a member of the National Futures Association and registered with the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission as a futures commission merchant. All references to and discussion of OTC products or swaps are made solely on behalf of Stonex Markets LLC, a member of NFA and provisionally registered with the CFTC as a swap dealer. StoneX Markets products are designed only for individuals or firms who qualify under CFTC rules as an eligible contract participant and who have been accepted as customers of StoneX Markets. This material should not be constructed as a solicitation of trading strategies and or services provided by the FCM division of StoneX Financial or StoneX Markets as noted in this presentation and podcast. Neither the FCM division of StoneX Financial Inc. nor StoneX Markets is responsible for any redistribution of this material by third parties or any trading decisions taken by persons not intended to view this material. Information contained herein was obtained from sources believed reliable, but is not guaranteed. These materials represent the opinions and viewpoints of the author and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and viewpoints of the FCM division of StoneX Financial or StoneX Markets. Reproduction or use in any format without authorization is forbidden. Copyright 2023, all rights reserved.